Welcome to episode six of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. My name is Arup Sen and I'm joined as ever by Simon Lovegrove. Hello, Simon. Hi, Arup. Great to be here. Now, on today's show, we will be taking a look at the Woolard Review with Matt Gregory, focusing on the potential impact in the buy now, pay later space. We will then catch up with Kevin Harnish from our Washington, D.C. office. And we will also be hearing from Claudine Salome from our Sydney office. But before we launch into the podcast, over to Simon for the big RT stories this month. Thanks, Aru. In terms of recent developments since our last podcast, I think it's fair to say that we've seen an avalanche of paperwork from the regulators. For example, in the UK, both the PRA and the FCA have published their policy statements on operational resilience, and the PRA has also published a policy paper on outsourcing. But the avalanche of paperwork hasn't been confined to the UK. Later on in this podcast, I'll be talking to Claudine Salome, a partner in our Sydney office, who covers the perfect regulatory storm that is brewing in Australia, with October 2021 seeing the commencement of a number of critical new regulatory requirements for their financial services industry. I think it's worth noting ESG continues to be a key regulatory theme. In particular, in the UK, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy has published a consultation paper setting out proposals to mandate climate-related financial disclosures by publicly quoted companies, large private companies, and limited liability partnerships. These proposals build on the expectations set out in the UK government's 2019 Green Finance Strategy that all listed companies and large asset owners should disclose in line with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Recommendations by 2022. There have also been ESG-related developments elsewhere in the world, including the United States, and I'll be discussing that with Kevin Harnish, a partner in our Washington, D.C. office later on in this podcast. Finally, there are three further UK regulatory developments worth touching on. First, the FCA has issued two speeches covering the important topic of diversity and inclusion and why these are regulatory issues. In particular, in one of these speeches, the FCA discusses the possibility of adding a sixth conduct questions for firms, being, is your management, is your management team diverse enough to provide adequate challenge, and do you create the right environment in which people of all backgrounds can speak up? This is much broader than representation. It's about a firm's culture, not just in relation to diversity, but inclusion too. Do people feel comfortable in the work environment such that they can demonstrate, share, and bring to bear their diversity of experience and background? Second, the FCA has launched a new whistleblowing campaign called In Confidence With Confidence. This is to encourage more reporting of potential misconduct to the FCA by those working in financial services. To support the campaign, the FCA has produced materials for firms to share with their employees and a toolkit for industry bodies and consumer groups to encourage people to whistleblow. Third, the FCA has published the findings from its multi-firm review where it considered mortgage and consumer credit firms' implementation of the September 2020 tailored support guidance. Now, all lenders need to review the findings from the FCA review and assure themselves that they have embedded and implemented the tailored support guidance within their firm. So that's the highlights, and that's what we can expect to see in April. Aaron, back to you. Thanks, Simon. 
Uh, certainly lots to uh, consider there. But uh, over now to Matthew, who'll be discussing the Willard Review. So in the first section of this month's podcast, I am joined by Matthew Gregory, and we are going to be looking at the Woolard Review, uh, specifically in regards to buy now, pay later products. First of all, hello, Matthew. Welcome. Hey, Arup. Good to speak to you. Always good to have you here. Um, let's just kick off with uh, probably the obvious uh, starter question here. What is the real Woolard Review and what's it looking at? Yeah, thanks very much. Um, So the Willard Review, yes, it was a review by the former interim CEO of the FCA, Christopher Willard, into innovation and change in the unsecured lending market. It took place over the course of last year, and the report was published by Mr Willard um, about a month ago. And in the report, there are a series of recommendations for the FCA. And as we understand it, the FCA have adopted all of the recommendations in there. And you mentioned at the start that we're going to focus really on the recommendation within the report surrounding the regulation of buy now, pay later products. And that's probably the headline that most uh, people will have will have seen and will have understood that currently exempt buy now, pay later products are going to be regulated alongside the remainder of buy now, pay later products, which currently fall within the scope of the regime at a point later on. This year, we anticipate there were there were a series of letters published alongside the report, which which you'll have seen, and they are between Mr. Willard and the uh, the Economic Secretary to the Treasury, John Glenn MP. In those letters, Mr. Willard makes the case for the urgent regulation of what are currently exempt buy now, pay later products. And as many people listening to this will know, the Financial Services Bill contains a number of domestic reforms for the financial services regulatory landscape in the UK. And uh, Mr. Willard was effectively making the case for inclusion of uh, exempt buy now, pay later products within scope of that that piece of legislation so as to bring bring them within scope of the regime sooner rather than later. I don't think we're aware at this stage, uh, the the specific timescale for the introduction of, of legislation dealing with uh, these these products, but I think on the basis of the letters that we've seen and the the concerns which are raised in the report, um, which we can come on to in a moment, we can certainly expect that um, in, in the short term. It's interesting. So before we perhaps dive into what what this would mean um, for firms operating in that space. Um, Perhaps, if, is it worth t- t- just taking a moment to sort of appreciate, like, what, what do we mean, you know, by BMPL? What was the sort of uh, requirements for people to actually rely on that exemption, um, which has been around for a while? And, and, and why, is, why is this happening now of all, of, all, of all times? Yeah, so really good questions. Thanks. The, on, on the first of those, the, the specific legislative requirements that the exempt products fit into are pretty narrowly drafted, but they're relied on by a wide range of lenders and also by retailers. Um, And I can explain that a little bit more in a moment. So you look at the particular legislative provisions themselves, they exempt certain types of credit agreements. And for these purposes, we're talking about uh, credit agreements where the borrower is an individual or, or what's known as a relevant recipient of credit. And unusually in the UK consumer credit regime, that can include uh, small partnerships of two or three persons or unincorporated associations. 
So with that in mind, we're talking about credit agreements which fulfill certain particular, as I say, quite specific legislative criteria. And I won't go through all of those, but the salient features are that the agreement needs to be one of a particular type. Um, and, and there are different types of exempt agreements provisions for different types of agreements. But the one that is most often relied upon requires that there to be, um, in the case of fixed sum credit, uh, no interest or charges. So interest free credit, uh, which is repayable within 12 months and uh, in 12 installments or fewer. And there's a similar uh, relatively similar exempt agreements provision for what's known as running account credit as well, which some of the buy now, pay later providers uh, also rely on. And just to come back to your, your second question, which was around why now? Well, the, the report from uh, Christopher Woolard and, and those who contributed to it identify a, a number of features of this market. And you won't be surprised to hear that the pandemic and the changed economic circumstances of individuals in the UK as a result of it and their economic behaviour is a key driver for the growth of this market. And that growth, I think, over the course of the last year is what's caused uh, some concern because increasingly um, younger people are using this type of facility in order to purchase goods and services on a, on a deferred payment basis. But what it means is that because these are products which sit outside the regulatory perimeter, there aren't obligations in the same way as there are obligations on firms in connection with regulated products to apply, for example, affordability criteria to make sure that the borrower is, is capable of repaying over time and that the credit is sustainable for their personal, from, from the perspective of their personal circumstances. So this is very much something that uh, I think is a, uh, a, a an area of concern that's been accelerated as a result of the pandemic and the, and the changed economic behaviours that, that I mentioned. Um, but also, if you look at the report, there are these headline points, and by now, pay later is one of them. But when you delve further into the detail of, of the recommendations from Mr. Woolard, you'll see that, that there's a, there's a, there are a series of comments made about affordability assessments and the focus which they've been given. And, and there's a call in the wider regulated sector for regulation to focus not just on that early stage, but also on mm. the remainder of the customer life cycle. Yeah, no, that's uh, it is. Uh, yeah, it does. It does seem sort of timely, as, as, as you sort of as you rightly point out there. Now, uh, let's move on to maybe what what the sort of the the real implications of this are. So, what would you say this means for firms that are operating uh, currently in that BNPL space? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think think there are. Sort of need to divide it up, don't you, between um, those who are currently regulated. So if we think about regulated lenders at the moment, lenders tend to, if they're offering exempt products which sit outside the regulatory perimeter, but these, just to be clear, these exempt, currently exempt products also sit outside most of the formalistic requirements of the CCA, they will probably run a couple of different processes. So they'll have a process for the regulated agreements which comply with CONC and the CCA and so on, and then maybe a separate process for unregulated BNPL products. So for lenders such as, such as those, there's going to be a need to move the unregulated products onto the regulated rails and to ensure that all of the CCA requirements provided, you know, as we assume, these uh, when unregulated products move into the uh, regulated sector, they, they forward in scope of the CCA. They'll need to, lenders will need to ensure that they uh, treat these uh, agreements as regulated and provide all the information and comply with all the other requirements of the CCA. 
for retailers who will often be uh, acting as a credit broker when introducing their customers as potential borrowers to a lender offering the NPL products, it's quite possible that they may need to become regulated themselves. And there are some options there because uh, depending on this, this, the way in which uh, the legislation is, is crafted, it's likely that there will be a possibility for brokers such as retailers to be appointed representatives. But, but nonetheless, in principle, they could become uh, subject to, to regulation. So for existing lenders and for, uh, for retailers, uh, there will be, there'll be quite a lot of change. For, um, for, for those lenders who are currently unregulated and they only offer unregulated products, then there's going to be quite a significant change in the sense that they will need to become directly authorised by the FCA and there is unlikely to be an opportunity for them to be appointed representatives because uh, the regime doesn't provide for uh, lenders to be appointed representatives in the way that it, it does at the moment for, for credit brokers. So potentially quite a lot of change for both lenders and retailers. And um, and of course, there's going to be quite a lot of change for, for customers, for, for borrowers, um, mm. purchases of, of goods and services as well, because the process that they'll need to go through when purchasing goods and services will be a bit different to the way uh, that it might look for an unregulated product. Okay, that's uh, potentially quite a, quite a lot of change afoot there. And uh, as you say, on, on sort of both sides uh, of the sort of transactional fence, if you like. Um, what is going to happen next, if anything, and how soon should we expect that? <laughs> yeah, sure. So what we will be expecting is Treasury-led uh, legislative reform. And, and of course, the FCA will be uh, feeding into that. But because we're talking about changes to the legislative framework here, to the RAO, that will be that will be led by the Treasury uh, and may be achieved through um, potentially through secondary legislation. The of course, there's going to be a, a, a range of other changes to the way in which consumer credit generally is regulated. We haven't spoken about the, the panoply of other <laughs> uh, recommendations in the Woolard Review, but there's going to be, I think, quite a lot coming out of that. And um, as I say, it's our understanding at least is that the FCA has accepted all of the recommendations in, in the report. So quite a lot of potential change to come, not just for lenders, not just for retailers, but um, to pick up on one point in, in the report, um, again, coming out of the pandemic, uh, credit reference agencies yeah. and the use of data in connection with credit worthiness and affordability assessments is going to be a key area, uh, potentially, potentially of change uh, mm. certainly um, an area that the regulator is likely to look at over the short term. Very interesting. Uh, it's very much a case, I think, uh, if you're listening at home, of, of watch this space. Um, now, if you want more information about this, uh, we've got a fairly long briefing note, I believe, on this. So uh, do get in contact with either Matthew or myself uh, if you want more information on that or log on to regulationtomorrow.com. Uh, but yeah, as we say, very much watch a case of very much watch this uh, watch this space. Matthew, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure having you here. Great to speak to you. Thanks, everybody. In this part of the podcast, I'm joined by Kevin Harnish, a partner in our Washington DC office. Hi, Kevin. It's great to have you with us today. Hey, Simon, th thanks so much. It's always great to be with you. Kevin, I just want to pick up with you today on the SEC's role in ESG. 
It seems that to me that the SEC has been active with various ESG-related announcements in the last couple of weeks. Can you bring us up to speed? What's been going on? Sure, I'd be happy to. And then, Simon, I, I think it's fair to say that the SEC has suddenly become very active on the ESG front. From an ESG disclosure standpoint, the SEC's traditionally been relying upon a principles-based approach, meaning companies must disclose ESG issues that arise to the level of known trends and in material risks. And the SEC had reasoned that whether ESG issues arise to the level of materiality that requires disclosure will necessarily vary from company to company. And so they leave it to companies to make their own individualized determinations about whether and what to disclose. But now, really now, and I think this is what you're alluding to, Simon, it seems pretty clear the SEC will be charting a different path. The SEC's acting chair and incoming chair both appear to be supportive of a formalized and uniform ESG disclosure regime on, on the theory, interestingly, that investors and other stakeholders really want and are demanding such a disclosure regi regime. And, and it's worth noting just some recent actions that have taken place in February and the first part of March. At the beginning of February, the SEC created a senior policy advisor for climate and ESG to address ESG issues across the entire regulatory framework of all of the SEC's offices and divisions, including enforcement, by the way. And then in late February, the SEC's acting chair directed the staff and the division of corporation finance to quote unquote, enhance their focus on climate related disclosures and public company filings. And as a practical matter, Simon, that means that public companies can be expecting new and detailed comment letters. And inevitably, these types of enhanced review initiatives lead to referrals to enforcement. And speaking of enforcement, to follow that up in early March, the SEC created or announced the creation of a task force in the Division of Enforcement specifically focused on climate and ESG issues. And as most people know, once a government agency forms a task force like that, it has to justify its existence. So I expect them to be active. And then, just within the last two weeks or so, the SEC issued a series of 15 multi-part questions for public comment, and the SEC undoubtedly will be using the responses to those questions to help formulate what is surely going to be a forthcoming ESG disclosure rule proposal. So, so Simon, in a nutshell, the SEC has indeed very quickly become quite active in the ESG disclosure space. Thanks, Kevin. That's really, really interesting. Um, one question that comes to my mind, um, does the SEC's enforcement task force on ESG have any implications beyond the corporate issuer contacts? Well, actually, that's a, that's a great question. And, and the short answer is yes, it absolutely does. People should realize that there's been a really dramatic, significant increase in sustainability-focused investment funds. And those funds will certainly be getting their own fair share of scrutiny. 
And just to put things in, in perspective, if I could, I, I recently read a statistic within the last week or so that between 2018 and 2020, total sustainability invested assets under management in the US grew from it's approximately $12 million to over $17 trillion. So not an insignificant amount. And that accounts amazingly for approximately one third of all US assets under professional management. So for SEC registered ESG focused funds, I think it's fair to say that one can expect the SEC to be scrutinizing those funds disclosures to their investors about their approaches to their sustainability evaluation criteria and related investment decisions, how those funds are allocating their capital and whether their actual investment activity is consistent with the fund's stated investment objectives. Thanks, Kevin. An awful lot to think about there. Um, as my final question, I just want to move to the topic of whistleblowing, which remains a hot topic on both sides of the pond. Um, how does the SEC's whistleblower program tie into the ESG Enforcement Task Force? Well, I, I think there is a, a very close connection, and, and I'll be happy to elaborate on that. Just, just by way of background, I assume most people probably realize the SEC's whistleblower bounty program it provides an extremely powerful incentive, incentive for people to report concerns about possible corporate wrongdoing. So maybe just a, a little bit of background to put the significance of the SEC's whistleblower program into perspective. Just last fiscal year alone, the SEC received more than 6,900 tips, approximately 750 of those came from outside the US. So this has global implications. And uh, with respect to corporate disclosures, more than 1,700 of those tips were about corporate disclosures, far and away the most common type of tip. And the SEC paid out about $175 million in the last fiscal year to whistleblowers. I mean, that is a, a lot of money. So with that background in mind, I have to say, I found it rather remarkable that when announcing the ESG Enforcement Task Force, the SEC was effectively soliciting whistleblower tips by having its press release highlight and link to the SEC's whistleblower tip line. I, I just had not noticed that before. Basically, it appears that the SEC appears to be wanting the public to feed it with potential leads to jumpstart its investigative work in the ESG space. So there, there is a pretty close tie to this task force and the whistleblower program. Thanks, Kevin. Lots to think about there. Always great to hear from you. Hey, thanks so much, Simon. I appreciate it. In this part of the podcast, I'm joined by Claudine Salome, who is a banking and insolvency litigator and a financial services regulatory lawyer based in Sydney. Hi, Claudine. Great to have you here. Hi, Simon. Great to be here. Claudine, there's always a lot going on in Australia, but 2021 seems to be a particularly busy year. Recently, you issued on the Norton Rose Fulbright website a new client briefing note called the Perfect Regulatory Reform Storm, which set out a number of critical new regulatory requirements that, came, that come into effect in October of this year. 
Can you tell us more? Sure, Simon. Um, as you said, October is going to be a very busy month for us in Australia. Um, and that, that month sees the commencement of a number of critical new regulatory requirements for the financial services industry in Australia. And they include the new breach reporting regime for credit licensees and a strengthened breach reporting regime for financial services licensees, new design and distribution obligations, and updated regulatory guidance on internal dispute resolution processes, and new remediation obligations regarding misconduct by financial advisors and mortgage brokers. Institutions obviously need to plan ahead to understand the changes and also to consider the interplay between the regimes and uplift systems, processes and any skill sets that are required. Well, that's an awful lot of regulatory reform for firms to deal with. Um, what do you think are some of the key challenges facing financial services providers try, currently trying to implement all of these changes? I think, Simon, the impact and uplift effort will differ across the industry, depending on current operating models of each institution. But for me, I think there will be two key challenges, regardless of the institution. The first one being the fact that some of the changes represent brand new obligations for providers. For example, credit licensees will be caught by breach reporting regime for the very first time. Um, and so that um, means they don't have the experience to deal with this regime and they will need to upskill their staff in how to deal with these new breach reporting obligations. And also most product issuers and distribution, distributors will be caught by the DDO regime or the design and distribution obligations, which will prescribe much greater scrutiny on the impact of a product on certain market segments and whether that product is really appropriate for certain customers and certain marketing and sales channels. And the second key challenge is understanding where and how the different regimes overlap and ensuring processes are designed and steps are taken to ensure holistic compliance and not just compliance with one regime over another. I know many institutions will be well advanced with implementing the changes, but may not appreciate how one regime may impact the other. And two examples highlight this. Um, for example, one is if and how an investigation of a complaint triggers new breach reporting requirements. And the second one being whether access to publicly available target market determinations under the design and distribution regime may increase complaint volumes regarding product suitability. And also that then necessitates bespoke training for complaint staff to ensure they are equipped to respond to these complaints in accordance with the new IDR regime. That's really, really interesting. Um, I just also want to touch on the new obligations uh, to remediate financial advisor and mortgage broker conduct that are being introduced. I know that remediation is an area that you have a lot of experience in, Claudine. Uh, can you talk us through the changes briefly and perhaps highlight anything that you're particularly focused on or concerned about? Sure, Simon. Um, so from October, there will be new obligations and strict timeframes to notify clients of actual or potential misconduct engaged in by financial advisors or mortgage brokers 
to investigate the nature and extent of the misconduct and any loss or damage that has been suffered, and then to remediate clients. And there are quite prescriptive timeframes involved in each of these steps. This is the first time the Corporations Act in Australia expressly requires remediation and the first time legislative timeframes have been put in place. ASIC, as the regulator in this space, is separately consulting with the industry on its proposed updates to guidance it issued a few years ago on review and remediation programs. And we are yet to see how this revised guidance will interact with the new remediation obligations in the Corporations Act. We expect remediation volumes to increase significantly from October, not just because of the new remediation obligations, but also because many more matters will need to be breach reported to ASIC under the new and improved breach reporting regime. And our expectation is that this will trigger an increase in mandated or voluntary remediation. So institutions really need to start thinking about how they can resource these programs with what we understand to be already stretched teams. That's really interesting, Claudine. And my sense from all what you're telling us is that it really, really is a perfect regulatory reform storm um, in Australia. Um, thanks for being on the podcast. It's always great to get your input, Claudine. Thank you very much, Simon. Take care. Thank you. That's great. I'd like to say thanks to all of our speakers today um, for another really interesting podcast. Um, we'll be producing another one um, in May. So thanks to everybody for listening.